right, everybody. Welcome to the show. This week, uh, Peter and I are going to do Bob Zemeckis' 1997 uh, big-budget sci-fi film adaptation of Carl Sagan's novel, Contact. Peter, welcome. Welcome, Doug. Uh, do you want to give a brief summary? A brief we'll summary dive of in. a like, three-hour movie. <laughs> sure. Right. Although it's, you could probably summarize it in a sentence. I was thinking about it while I was watching. Yeah, that might be true. I'm not that concise. So uh, the movie is about Dr. Ellie Arroway, played by Jodie Foster, who's a precocious, uh, nerdy kid. Both of uh, her parents die when she's young. And um, she grows up to be a radio astronomer and is working in SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, where she's looking for radio signals uh, from the heavens and looking for uh, aliens sending signals back. Uh, to the consternation of her former um, bosses. So long story short, she finds uh, a signal that's an alien signal. It turns out to be a an encoded uh, large set of instructions that they figure out are blueprints to a huge uh, machine that uh, they're not sure ultimately what it does. Um, and eventually they select um, astronauts to go uh, there's a disaster with the first astronaut, so she ends up filling in and traveling through the machine. Um, to the outside observer, it seems like only a few seconds pass and the machine malfunctions and nothing happens after they spent like $500 billion on it. But to her perspective, she spends many, many hours traveling through wormholes and ending up on a beach talking to an alien who takes the form of her dead father. Um that tells her that we're not alone and eventually that um, that they're going to recontact, uh, recontact us and this is the first step. When she comes back, no one believes her because she was only gone for a few seconds and they have all this film from the outside where the pod just drops through the machine and straight through and nothing happens. Her recordings from on board uh, also supposedly don't show anything. So she goes to congressional hearings and essentially is discredited. Uh, and the, in the, the last scene, it turns out there's some, there's a confidential uh, re report that says that her device uh, didn't record anything, just as they said, recorded only static, but it recorded 18 hours of static. And in the end, she's back at SETI um, showing some kids around and continues funding. And I didn't touch on her um, romantic interest because... We will. Yeah, we will, but it's sort of uh, grafted on anyway, in a weird way. And a, a major theme of the movie is, right, science versus religion, which right. I got to tell you, I found kind of artificial. Like, they made it sound like like you were either a, you know, a Bible-thumping guy who only believed in, you know, the Old Testament, or you were a scientist and there was no overlap between the two. Like, it, it portrayed things in a very black and white way yes although i'm sure you could believe in the new testament also according to this movie even though <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah. <laughs> yeah as a matter of fact you better believe in the new testament <laughs> if you're pumping the bible <laughs> um right and the big the big that's the, the big thread the through it i mean the movie is about the movie is about ostensibly first contact with extraterrestrials but it's also ostensibly about um 
you know, like, what do you believe that you cannot see? And they, and I think that they, they try repeatedly to address this theme from different angles. And sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it wrong. I think it's the central theme of the movie really is, you know, rationalism versus faith or uh, spirituality versus modern uh, philosophical modern position, however you want to phrase it. That's really the central theme of the movie. And then there's some, you know, technology versus uh, religion or versus um, uh, sort of, you know, uh, Luddite uh longings for the past for humanism i guess so there that's a sort of a secondary related theme but really that that's really the theme of the movie more than than anything i i would i would say so i would say so and like i like i said i think sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it wrong and i think when they get it right is when they show that there's more than one way to look at it and when they get it wrong is when they resort to stereotypes. Like, for example, when the first machine is destroyed, it's destroyed by Jake Busey doing his, you know, best wild-eyed, crazy, religious nut on screen. And it's it's very easy for them to sort of, you know, paint, oh, of course the religious guy would, would look strange and act strange and be a violent fanatic. Um, like, that's an example of how they get it wrong. And I think, for example, one scene where they really do get it right is when uh, the Matthew McConaughey character, the, the Reverend Joss, is sitting with Ellie Arroway and, and she's sort of arguing against faith, against faith. And then he says to her, did you love your father? And she says, yes. And he says, prove, prove it, it to me. And of right. course she can't. And like, that's a much more nuanced way of talking about how some things are just not provable because they're emotionally or spiritually based as opposed to, you know, Jake Busey, you know, straight from Starship Troopers, you know, with his eyeballs swirling around and his skull wearing a, a dynamite, you know, suicide vest. Yeah. Although that was awesome casting. Because yeah, I like Jake Busey. I'm kinda, I was kind of sad that he sort of vanished from the movies. Yeah, he has no no role in this movie either, really, except as a lunatic. Uh, it doesn't say much. But, <laughs> to blow but himself up. He, he looks, but he's great at blowing himself up. Yeah, I he's give awesome. He, he really looks creepy, and he looks so much like his dad. that uh, <laughs> Who also looks creepy. Super creepy. I mean, that's why they cast him. So the movie, to me, the movie feels like a bunch of set pieces with a lot of kind of forced character stuff thrown in yeah. um like the opening scene is terrific like the long pullback from the earth you know to seeing the entire universe essentially um is a great great cgi sequence and it kind of sets the tone for the whole movie because it gives you a sense of the distances that right. you're talking about the scene where they get the message is essentially a set piece um it's the, super well shot and just crafted in general. I mean, this movie yeah. is made by true pros. And, and Zemeckis has talent. I mean, Zemeckis is really a good director. And this is Kim at the top. Sure. This was his movie right after Forrest Gump. This was his next uh, next picture. Yeah. And he, yeah, the movie's just just really well crafted. And uh, it, it's very smooth. You know, there's there's just not a hiccup. The the photography the editing technically there's not a hiccup technically the story there are many hiccups right lots of hiccups right um but you know like the 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 scene where they 
decode the message, the, the destruction of the first machine, and then essentially her trip. I mean, the movie is built around those couple of big, big moments and scenes. And then there's, I kind of felt like, I mean, I've seen this movie a couple of times and I kind of felt like watching it again, like in between the big scenes, I was kind of looking at my watch, waiting for the next big scene to come. It's a little slow. And then the movie, it, it, the end, it just gets worse towards the end. You know, the ending is just extremely unfulfilling, even though it's supposed to be. Um, it's supposed to reach a resolution where, but the resolution doesn't make much sense. And I, I just, I thought it was uh, very unsatisfying toward the end, the last whatever quarter or third of the movie. Do you mean including her trip or after her trip? Let's say including her trip because I can't help but think of 2001. Well, and again, you know, and I feel bad because I'm literally, you know, worshiping with the altar of Kubrick every single podcast. But I, I just you can't am, have a better illustration, again, though. I mean, I'm just, you know, once again, like 2001 is just the giant that this thing is just in the shadow of. As good as a movie as this is, it, it pales compared to 2001. And I've, I have other comments about 2001 later. Um, uh, but um, so still, well, I, I had to give Zemeckis credit because it is a serious sci-fi film, and it's a it's a real attempt to address big big issues. Which you know you could imagine, you know, there's not a lot of big sci-fi movies that don't have a lot of explosions, and this movie has exactly one explosion. Right. Yeah, they're trying. Yeah, and, and they're uh, you know, and again, in all fairness, they're succeeding. Right. Um, I got to tell you, though, I did not buy Jodie Foster in this. Uh, I mean, she's essentially playing Sagan. I mean, this is a, a feminized version of Sagan himself who wrote the book. And if you read the book, which I read many years ago, it's very obvious that Arroway is a gender-switched version of Sagan. And she's good in all the technical scenes, but the scenes where she has to emote... Hmm she just can't do it. Like she's so kind of like wooden and detached. Like I did not buy her romantic relationship with the McConaughey character at all. They don't have a lot of sparks, do they? No, they have zero chemistry. uh, He's really, he's sort of miscast. I mean, he's about 12 in this movie and she's significantly older. Yeah. And they just don't seem to get, go together. Exactly. Maybe for the one night stand, which they have in the beginning, but they're supposed to be right, kind but, of but the idea that that one night stand leads to them having deep longing for each other over many years just totally rang false to me. Absolutely, and and right the the movie tries to make a a long, um, very slow brewing you know romance right that is uh, fulfilled at the end of the movie when they run off together essentially. Sort of. I mean, they they clasp hands at the end, but then she's shown alone 18 months later. So you don't really know if he's with her. Right. But they kind of ride off together. And the other thing is that, you know, the the end. (laughs) Literally. Literally. And the the end is supposed to be where um, she comes to realize his wisdom, in a sense, because uh, ironically, she can't explain anything that happened to her and no one believes her. And, yeah, you know, although I don't think he's with her. Like, I don't think he's, you know, typing his next spiritual bestseller at their house in the shadow of a very large array. Like, I, I get the impression that they part ways. Yeah, probably true. 
I mean, the other thing, too, is I found it super hard to believe that, like, his passion for her is so deep that he gets her to admit in front of the selection committee for who's going to go that she doesn't believe in God. Like, you almost could feel like he'd be the opposite. He'd be like, hey, hey, uh, she's going to go and I slept with her. I banged her. You know what I'm saying? Like, like he like I just I just didn't buy it at all. Um, I don't know. Maybe you might feel differently, but it doesn't sound like you do. No, I, I feel the same way. And I, you know, he, his place in the movie is supposed to embody the, you know, spiritual um, side of things, right? The uh, right. And, and she, yeah. And, and he sometimes, and she, you're right, she's sometimes so cool he does. And, she's so cool and flinty. I don't know. Well, there's a lot of jaw clenching. She does a lot of jaw <laughs> clenching. Even, so even when she's emoting, right, she's got her jaw clenched. So when she's thinking about her dad or when she's, when she's has a scene where she's supposed to be vulnerable, like with him, for example, um, there's a lot of jaw clenching and that's supposed to be her character development, um, in the movie where she, you know, she starts out purely as this sort of person who is, who's needy and, and science serves, um, it serves a spiritual purpose for her as well as an intellectual purpose. And it, the movie suggests that that can't that that's that that that's an untenable position in the end. Right, and they she, can't coexist, which right. again is this whole sort of artificial construct on which the movie is based. Right, and she's supposed to develop into this rounded human being that can see her. And but, the, but some of this goofy. is Sagan. Sagan, you know, Sagan was a uh, an atheist, and he spoke about it a lot. Right. And you know, to Sagan, it was a you know it was a divide that he couldn't cross. So therefore he wrote about people who couldn't cross it from either direction. Whereas I imagine that most people who are religious or spiritual, you know, they don't think that the earth is 6,000 years old. They understand that there's, you know, like there's, there's more to it than just a sort of extreme perspectives. Yeah. I think maybe they just don't think about it that much. You know, yeah, or, you know, it, it just, or it's it's not a burning question in their mind, or it just works the way it is. You know, I mean, maybe you you just sort of end up within a middle position somehow, and uh, I, I think that probably that's the way most people exist, and and that's the reason why that fundamentally doesn't make sense to me is that 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 can't replace her existential longings or her longing for interpersonal um, contact or. <laughs> kind of no pun intended. You know, I, I, was, I was debating <laughs> if I should have said something. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, is that what the movie's really, the contact in the movie really is? Is her, right, her and Matthew McConaughey. Uh, or anyone, you know, in a way. Right. To unclench. The um, jaw. <laughs> but, eh. I don't, I don't know. know. The, I don't the other thing that, it. so the two things that really bugged me on this watching, one is the, that their relationship just, I didn't, I just didn't buy it at all. And the other thing is, and it's sort of a um, sort of similar to some of my other complaints that I said earlier is like the way that everyone is so extreme, like like there's very few people in this movie who come across as sort of full people. And like, for example, um, you know, if you're rich, you're evil. If you work for the government, if you're evil, if you're a male, with the exception of, you know, McConaughey. the Matthew McConaughey character, you're kind guy. of evil. Right. Well, but if right, but again, if you're a minority or some sort of some sort of way marginalized or sick, you're okay. Yeah, if you're wounded. Um, right. But like, for example, the James Wood character, he plays the national security advisor, Mister Kitts. Like, he's kind of like a severe dick, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, he's pretty. Like, he's oily you know, too. But you know, like, 
He's even if you James actually Woods. listen to James uh, Woods' character's lines, like everything he says is totally fair. Like he's worried about like this supposed national security issues. And at the end of the movie, he points out that she really can't prove anything he said. Like, but he's portrayed as like a jerk, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, he's awful. And Tom Skerritt, right, as the her opportunist uh, ever. Right. But again, he's. Total he's dick. portrayed as a jerk and mean and he's sort of trying to quash her but again to flip it over what he says to her right there at the Arecibo observatory like I'm doing you a favor like you're mm-hmm. ruining your career with this crap like of course he turns out to be wrong but you know from his point of view if they had had him deliver those lines not screaming and wagging his finger in her face like he's not completely wrong correct but they use each character to represent a facet of extreme BS that they want to portray. You know, right? They, and that's the and that's the problem. They build all these straw mans, yep, just so they can tear them down, and it makes Ellie look self righteous and vindicated. Correct. But and, but it's stupid. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's a dumb way to do it, and it 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 would have been better if people had been more willing to have a little back and forth, you know, like, again, they've created it in this extreme way. And even Haddon, you know, Haddon, like they, they go back and forth. Is Haddon a good guy or is Haddon a villain? And then they, they add in, and I guarantee you it wasn't in the first draft. They add in that one stupid line just to sort of like, make sure that you and the audience realize that, Haddon's a villain because he's rich. And he's like, at the end, he's like, you know, I want to do one last thing from the people of Earth who have given from whom I have taken so very much. Like, did he put a gun to their head and make people around the world buy his products? Right. No. Like, it's stupid. It's just, it's like, it's like saying that Bill Gates is evil because we all use PCs. Like, it's a bunch of crap. No, it's, I mean you can I don't say know. he's like, evil it's just dumb. for other reasons. <laughs> but how? But how is Haddon evil? He's a rich yeah. businessman running his interests. Like well, how is like he's not inherently evil. Well, he's but evil they give because, him that sort of line. But he's cheating just, nature because he has cancer and he's fighting it like a lot of evil rich guys in the movies. They always they have right because poor people wouldn't fight cancer if they had it. Right, so he just keeps trying, but clearly, right? He he's over. He's somehow um, a freak of nature because he's trying to cheat the normal order. Right, of things. And he flies around all the time and doesn't land. Although I'm wondering how he gets his uh, commercial plane to midair refuel. <laughs> I guess he lands. He just doesn't get off the plane. I guess I don't I mean, know. Like to me, like those like, are the Fritos. those are the big, big, big problems. Like. But again, audiences loved it. I don't know. I mean, I read the book. I saw the movie. I bought the VHS tape back in the day. Like, I guess I loved it, too, enough that I I got over my concerns. But just watching it again now, I don't know. Like, I'm surprised James Woods took that part. Well, he's playing James Woods. This is what he is in every part for the last 15 years. Yeah. He's the same guy. He's like an evil government slash corporate employee who's sort of kind of oily and suspicious or flat out nasty <laughs> right I mean, that's your second use of the term oily yeah that's uh, perfect i mean that's that's exactly what he's like right he's yeah. although they say in real life he's a super nice guy you know but it shows you just means he's a good actor you know no he no convince I'm not, you that he's that i'm not saying james woods is a jerk that's what he's playing 
you know, yeah. he, he, that's frequently the role that he ends up getting. I mean, maybe they, he, he's made himself a little niche, you know, character actor yeah. career doing that at this point. And, you know, look, the guy's cashing a check. He probably got a couple hundred G's for, you know, yeah, a week or of more work. or more at least. Right. He's a pretty big name. William Fitchter uh, is good as always as, uh, as mm-hmm. the deaf guy whose name I can't remember. Um, He's His kind name of I think, is by the way, is Kent Clark. How do you like Kent that Clark? One? Yeah, I remember that Flip it was. That yeah, that's over. good. <laughs> I remember that it was Kent. Although, although one of the lessons in this is that, uh, like, if you have a, a deaf guy around, he'll always hear something that everyone else is missing. Yeah, like, he, that's guy, the, yeah. I think he does it three times in the movie, and kind of the third time, I was like, "Really, really, no, no one else heard that." Well, right. because all those people, if you don't, if you don't compensate with superhuman senses in another sense, then what good are you really? I mean, we might as well just kill them. Right. Cause blind deaf people. people hear better than regular people. Yeah, blind I'm sorry. People, Cause right. blind people, exactly. <laughs> deaf people don't Otherwise, hear better than regular people at all. <laughs> what you, I mean, look, we got, a, <laughs> that was the dumbest thing I've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> well, look, you know, other, we're spending all this tax money to put in like, um, you know, like stoplights, uh, you know, crosswalks that, that clank and stuff so they can cross the street. So they better be good for something. <laughs> but you know what it reminded me of? I remember it's funny because I remember when I saw in the theater when he shows up right before the launch, I said uh, to the guy I saw it with, who I might have even been you. Um, I, don't even remember. I said, uh, he's going to hear something. <laughs> <laughs> Not a big leap in this one. <laughs> you know, like he's going to pull it out. But it, it sort of reminds me of Airwolf. Like I'm going to actually jump from contact to Airwolf wow. a little bit here. Nice move. <laughs> But it reminds me of Airwolf because, like, every single episode of Airwolf, you know, basically had somebody say some version of the line, God, if we only had a helicopter. Oh, we have a helicopter! You know, like, like if only we had somebody who could hear some additional data in this. No- oh, we do! You know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, this is kind of bullshitty. But it wasn't a checkoff, and I mean the writer checkoff, not the uh, helmsman checkoff, uh, who said, like... Like, never, you know, mention a gun in Act 1 unless the gun is fired by the end of Act 3. Like, like mm-hmm. you can't, like, like Kent can't show up unless he's going to hear something because otherwise there's nothing for him to do because he's blind. He also mm-hmm. serves as, well, it's suggested that he's one of her only friends or one of her only emotional, you know, con- like close right. confidants. Confidants, yeah. right. Yeah. Although why, why doesn't she like, you know, banging him out? You know, like, why, isn't, why don't they have a romantic relationship? <laughs> they have a lot more to talk about. You know, they could talk about yeah. waveforms and telescopes and the I mean, wow signal. Yeah, they could. Right. Exactly. They've got a lot in common. I mean, well, but, you know, maybe they did. We don't know. We don't know. It's never explored. His hair. I mean, she could probably talk about <laughs> he's got he's got like an kind of a it's, it's like somewhere in between a mullet and a. There's a lot of hair in this movie, by the way. Everybody's got really good hair in this movie. Nobody's balding in this movie. Yeah. And Tom What's up Skerritt, with that? Tom Skerritt, you know, as the evil and uh, National Science Foundation. Drumlin. Dude, whatever he is. David Drumlin. Drumlin. He's too old in this role, too. I yeah, think. I they wouldn't send him. He looks too old. I mean, right. like, you know, in Alien, which is 20 years before this, he's supposed to be a little grizzled already. Right. Right. Because when he plays Dallas, he's already he's already going gray. Right. So that wasn't a great casting. 
And yeah, the casting is, I don't know, you wonder who else they could have picked. You know, George Miller was originally going to do this of uh, Mad Max fame. It would have been interesting to see who he picked. It's starring Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> now, that would have been that would have been interesting. if he made Although Mel Gibson did play a, a, a priest, or I guess not a priest, but a reverend in um, Signs, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. Hmm. So anyway, yeah, I wonder who else they could have done it. But well, again, I don't want to tear the whole thing down. It's It's got, and again, the set pieces are good. And like, for example... The, I, and I, I could mention this later like, so when we do our best scene, best line, best shot. But, I mean, the scene where they get the signal is fantastic. Except I don't, I don't like the shouting when she's like, she hears right it Right Ascension, 83. Yeah. What? And there's this fake drama that somehow they have to, they have to scrunt, running around, scrambling around in the control center. And, you I know. don't know. I, I, I bought that because I kind of felt like they didn't know how long it was going to last. Like maybe that was the whole thing, three pulses and it's gone. Yeah. No, no, I, I don't know. I, that. I, I, I think that understand. that scene is great. And they sort of contrast like the high tech, very large array, which I've never been to, but got to see someday. But they contrast the VLA. With, you know, she's on the old American convertible, right. you know, she's listening on the headsets, this bit where she's driving in. Um, but they have you know, and then, and then they, they segue into the bit of the prime number. It's a great sequence. Yeah, the prime number, that, that was good. And I, I kind of like the way the, the, the technical aspects where they're trying to sort of figure out the signal are sort of nice. Um. It, yeah, and the way that logical. like they're they're worried about possible interference, like they're like, mm-hmm. "What well, do you got? AWACS at a Kirtland, you know?" Right. And then and they, I also and it's also find... good. It's sort of implied that like they didn't really expect it to happen. Like the two guys back in the room are basically you know playing grab ass for the four hundred eighty third night in a row because mm-hmm. nothing's going to happen. And then when it actually happens, you know, like they're basically caught with their pants down. They're running around like idiots setting shit up. Right. No, oh, that was it was sort of nice. I don't know. I I think I like that scene better than you did from the way you sound. Just the the the, the, the she repeats it. I mean, can they have decent walkie talkies? Like, couldn't she just <laughs> call? I mean, why does she screams it like? Listen, 15 this is a times. government funded operation, okay? <laughs> but like, I, I mean, and and usually, you know, if you scream into a walkie talkie, it sounds it terrible. Does it work better? Yeah. No, but it looks better on screen. You know, and also now she, you know, she's regretting not putting the top down because the wind's flying through the car as she drives the convertible back. Um, there's an echo, by the way. There's an echo of um, the great shot, like when her father dies and the camera tracks her running in the house and up the stairs to get his presumably nitroglycerin. And then actually it turns out the shot is actually being filmed through the mirror, right? That long yeah, tracking city cam shot is echoed very directly by the shot of her running up into the control room at the VLA when she gets out of the convertible. Like, they're not exactly the same, but they're very similar. And it's, again, it's the Ellie character, you know, running at the time of urgency, you know, up through up through the stairs and through a building. So mm-hmm. very a, a good echo there. There's another great echo uh, in the movie, um, and I don't know if you agree or disagree, but I, I do like the idea that they send back the Hitler 1936 Olympic Games mm-hmm. uh, message. Like that's a good bit, and it throws the audience off. And then they have a good, they have a good explanation for it. But I don't know if you noticed, but the in the alien drawing, the the image of the human inside the pod in the alien blueprints is standing in the same posture as Hitler. <laughs> 
which is a great little bit. Just, yeah, that, you know, because they were like, well, that's how these humans stand, you know, <laughs> and they didn't draw legs because none of the people in the Hitler video, there's two Nazis standing next to him and their legs are behind the barrier. So the drawing ends at the waist because they don't know what we look like below. But he didn't have he didn't have a little, you know, Hitler mustache, though. No, 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 no. It's just a line drawing. But I thought, oh, that's really clever. Like they drew the guy like maybe this maybe Hitler will come and see us. And there was no armband. No, there's no arm mustache. <laughs> a little toothbrush mustache. Yeah, no, um, I yeah, the the Hitler was clever, and they they reveal it at a sort of a reasonable pace, so you don't you sort of think like, is that a swastika? And then <laughs> it is, and then they then you realize what it is, and then they don't draw it out too God. long. Yeah, <laughs> they don't, and, and they they sort of they move along. You know, they don't sit there and overdo it. You know, they just yeah they. Right, because to belabor it more is pointless. Right. Um, the other great thing in this movie is the machine looks awesome. Yeah, even from the top like, when she's going to drop down into it. You it's know, it's, it's just such a, like a counterintuitive look, and it's not right. You know, humans, like, we think in right angles. You know, like, it's all circles and rotation. I don't know about you the know. little rocket booster thing, though. Yeah, that looks stupid. I mean, what are they, they're aliens. The other two need, didn't need rockets, but the third one does. Yeah, and, and like, didn't the aliens come up with something better than freaking chemical booster rockets? <laughs> I mean, this thing is sending you through space time. Right. They got to put like they got to strap like an Estes D rocket to the thing. <laughs> it was actually two rockets at the end. Two so Estes two. D rockets. Yeah, get that reference. <laughs> the, I believe it was the Maxi Icarus, which you could also <laughs> transport a grasshopper in. <laughs> yeah, but the parachute doesn't open. No, it burns. It never works, right? Or you lose it. And by the way, since we're getting to Estes, like you and I did a lot of model rockets as kids. And for me, the hardest, hardest part was like you'd make the thing, you'd glue the thing, you'd paint the thing. And, you know, you'd go 10, 9, 8, da, 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 and you'd hit the button. Where'd it go? Gone, you know, <laughs> like just gone. Like it wasn't like the Saturn V that took off. So gone. And then you'd look up. And I mean, I bet we lost, I can only speak for myself, but I mean, I guarantee you, I lost half my rockets the first time I launched them. It, Never to be seen again. It was so disappointingly fast. <laughs> and, and it came down in a tree half the time. And of course, you know, whenever they, they show it on the, like the picture on the package, it's like a takeoff and it's got this big plume of fire rumbling oh, around yeah. it and stuff. But just, just gone. <laughs> right. I mean, the thing is basically at a, it's at like 400 feet in like a tenth of a second. <laughs> well, because it weighs nothing. Right. It weighs nothing. And it's <laughs> like the impulse, the specific impulse of those little chemical engines is huge. Right. Compared to the, you know, four ounces that the rocket weighs. Right. Plus, when you're a kid, you're trying to cram the biggest uh, and, you know, counterintuitively because you're because you're an idiot when you're a kid. I mean, you should underpower <laughs> the thing. If anything, when our right. kids when our kids did it, we only used A and B engines, and we recovered the the rocket every time. But you and I didn't think that way. We were we were like, put the D in. Oh yeah, <laughs> if if we could have strapped like four of them with duct tape around the thing and had them, I mean, hey, we, that's what we would have done. That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the more the bigger, the better, right? <laughs> once once me and 
I think you, I don't know if it was you or whoever. We, I had the Maxi Icarus and we put a grasshopper in it and then like it, it separated. So like a couple hundred feet up, yeah. it separated and the grasshopper was suddenly airborne at uh, a couple hundred feet. Uh, Although I suspect he was actually fine. Probably he was like, thank God I'm out of those kids. <laughs> I know. Oh, grasshopper shepherd. <laughs> Grastronaut. <laughs> Grastronaut shepherd. I know. Oh, you man. think about it, it probably was like 400 G's for, you know, a brief second. Too, Fraction of a second, yeah. The thing was probably still fine. Yeah, but it is dumb. But you could imagine that when they were making this, they were like, we need something. How about some rockets? Yeah, just, just stick them on the side. <laughs> yeah, whoever came up with the rocket idea, not so good. Yeah, that is bad, though. But but the machine itself looks great. Mm-hmm. The, the like wormhole the looks a lot like I was wondering, like, were we going to see Deep Space Nine on the other end of this wormhole? Because it <laughs> reminded me a lot of the wormhole on Deep Space Nine. Like, I was like, you know, would they pass, you know, Cisco and Dax in a runabout, you know, as she went through this thing? I don't know. Maybe going the other direction. Well, that was that's Paramount. Odo. But that's Paramount, right? This was uh, this, this was is Warner Lions. Bro- is Warner it? Brothers. Is it? Uh, um, so they wouldn't do a tie-in. Otherwise, though, they probably would. And and the the wormhole, whatever the sequence, the it, you know, it just it pales next to the Stargate. It just pales. I mean, when you think of um, the work that went into the Stargate sequence, like I think the Stargate sequence in two thousand one took over a year. Hmm. You know, and that's um, I think it's it's Doug Trumbull. Yep. made the Stargate sequence almost single-handedly. Yeah. Uh, you know, this doesn't feel like a year of work. This feels like, you know, it was a farmed-out project to the VFX people. You know, whereas, like, sure. Doug Trumbull basically reinventing the slit-scan camera to make the Stargate sequence in 2001. But that's also why the Stargate sequence goes for, I think it's about 12 or 15 minutes, and it, it holds your attention the whole time. Right. And you know what the best part is compared to this? Dave Bowman doesn't say a damn word. And she is babbling. <laughs> and not only is she babbling, I mean, literally, she's babbling. She doesn't say anything. She just says, I can't describe it. I, 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 it's so, wow. They should have sent a poet. They should have sent a poet. No, it's such just a should, stupid line. They should have just had you not say anything. Well, and they, they compound the error when she gets there. And again, Last, this is my last Kubrick, whatever, slavish worship moment to the podcast. But, you know, the genius of 2001, I think there's a lot of genius in 2001. And I, again, thought of it in this movie, but the great genius of 2001 that can never be surpassed is the aliens don't say a word and they don't explain themselves to us because they don't bother. Like, you don't go outside into your yard and explain yourself to ants. It's totally mysterious and it's weird and creepy. And you still and don't prob- know what right. happens. The problem is when the aliens talk, it only gives away the fact that the movie was written not by an extraterrestrial, by a human. And because the movie is written by a human, the aliens can't help but sound like a person. Right. right? Yeah. And that's not exciting. And for example, like when she meets the alien who takes on the form of her father in Pensacola, you know, what he says is super pat. Oh, you're an interesting mix. Terrible. You know, like some variation on, you know, like this is basically a reprise of what the Metron says to Kirk after he defeats the Gorn in an arena. 
you know. It's what every science fiction movie says when it tries to have a, a spiritual twist or something, or at least a feel-good twist, not even spiritual. It's it's in every science fiction alien contact movie where you you want to have a happy, reassuring moment or ending. <laughs> Right, it's and you have to have the, the alien kind of from a pedestal on high say something to the effect of, you're a barbarian, but you've got potential, right? This is the Metron, right? This is, I'm going to read you the, what the Metron says to Kirk, and it's very, very similar. And this is, I think, 1966. The Metron says to Kirk after he, he makes the bamboo cannon in one of the coolest moments in the original Star Trek, he destroys the, and shoots the Gorn. He says, um, he says, by sparing your helpless enemy, who surely would have destroyed you, you demonstrated the advanced trait of mercy, something we hardly expected, which is basically the same sentiment. Like, oh, you're savage, but oh, look at that. There's some advanced traits to you. You are capable like, of great dreams and great nightmares. That's what he right. says. <laughs> right. It's, it's crap. It's crap. And, and honestly, the Metron, the Metron said it better. Much better. In all fairness. The Metron said it better. I know, but you know, look, nobody well, nobody watched that Star Trek until later when they got lucky. You know, what do you mean? Like no one, Star Trek wasn't a hit like until later when it kind of found the right audience at the right time in that unique way. No, but I mean, but this is made in the nineties. I mean, I guarantee you, Bob Zemeckis has seen Arena. Like, oh, there's yeah. no way that oh, no, Bob no. Zemeckis hadn't seen Arena. They've and seen probably it? Carl Sagan saw it too. I just I don't think it's possible for them to make. I think they're always going to take the low road for the sake of trying to appeal to the broadest audience. You know, so they're. No, know. I know, but but I guess my point is like when she meets the alien, he doesn't say anything of great consequence. Oh, it's, it's totally lame. I agree with The you. only interesting thing the alien says is that they didn't build the Stargate. Somebody else did. And they don't know who. Like, that's a genuinely interesting sci-fi point. Yep. That, that is as powerful as these guys are, you know, maybe, maybe someone else is even more powerful than them. Right. And Dave Bowman in The Alien in 2001... Dave Bowman eats dinner in a weird Louis the Fourteenth bedroom <laughs> and ages, ages knocks and over then, his glass. And then there's a floating fetus, and that's the end. <laughs> Best ending ever. By right. The way. That's how you show some aliens. Well, and also like you know the alien. The, sorry, the alien. The audience walks out of 2001 with a sense of like wonder and mystery, whereas in this, the mystery is more pat. Yeah, there there isn't any mystery. I mean, they don't they don't leave you any room for mystery. They cram down your throat that Well, that that's the 18 hours is real. Right. And you know, and then basically that you you can be spiritual and rational and that humans have there's a future and that it's it's okay because the future is in that there's life everywhere in the universe and you're not alone and that should ease your existential uh, anxiety instead of going to worship Jesus or something like that. It's and not even someday that we'll be out there among the stars. Yeah, and then we'll feel better. But how does that really make you feel better? You're still going to croak four million years before anybody gets anywhere. Probably even to Mars. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, just... I remember when Interstellar came out, I got all interested in interstellar travel, which I'd been interested in periodically over the years. And I read Going Interstellar by Jack McDevitt, which completely convinced me that interstellar travel 
maybe in the year 3000. Like, ah, crud. It's so, you know, so far from us. If that long. Yeah. If that's it's like, soon, like I mean. you and me contemplating interstellar travel is like a medieval peasant contemplating a flight to the moon. Right. That's about where we are. Yeah. So that was truly the most disappointing aspect. To me. And again, if, if they hadn't had that scene of the 18 hours of static on her, you know, her headset, maybe it would have been a better ending. Like, let the viewer decide. Yeah, I mean, if they shot the, the, the trip differently, the thing is, you know, they can't, it's hard to do once you're following. You can't follow. How do you follow 2001? It's, it's well, tough. But yeah, but again, but the, I think maybe a better way to do it is you don't try to. And for example, you know, there's lots of first contact movies. Like this movie made me, like I, I made like a little pencil list while I was watching this of all the the first contact movies there are. And again, you know, you don't, you can do a first contact movie that doesn't echo or touch on 2001 at all. And, and for example, you could even argue that, you know, Arena is just another version of the first contact story. Close Encounters. Right? Yeah, there's a whole bunch. Oh, yeah. there's a ton of them, yeah. right? Uh, Close Encounters. You could argue that Alien mm-hmm. is a first contact movie. The Abyss, right? District 9, which is, well, I guess that's kind of after they've been with them a while. Yeah. We got to do that one. Stood still. I'm talking about the good 50s one, the William Wyler one. Um, um, not William Wyler. Um, who directed the original Day of the Earth Stood Still? The same guy who directed yeah, Robert Wise. Same guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, same guy who directed Star Trek: The Motion Picture. You know, Close Encounters, Solaris. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a lot of first contact movies, mm-hmm. um, and they don't all follow this True. this format of you have to take a giant journey and meet the aliens. Yeah, and you know you could kind of oh. lump them into ET. Yeah, E.T., right? And again, you could kind of lump them into Aliens Benign or Aliens Malevolent, right? Independence Day is kind of awful as it is in some ways. Is you know, it's clearly a first contact movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and Star a lot eight. of 50s. Yeah, a lot of 50s. <laughs> don't even go there. <laughs> like, it, was a, it was a mega hit. <laughs> oh, they made a, a bunch point. of sequels and a TV show, man. Yeah, I know. Made a lot of money. Made a lot of money. But it was... Anyway, <laughs> we'll get to Stargate someday. I hope not. <laughs> Once was enough. Bite your tongue. <clears throat> but, you know, but again, there's a lot of ways to do this. And, and I think part of the mistake that they made is, like, they, they must have been so consciously aware that they were, you know, treading on 2001's territory. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, there's an interesting middle ground that, uh, that you don't see in the movies, but you see in books is where the aliens are neither clearly benign nor malevolent. Um, you know, or like it like it like incompatible is I guess what I'd call that. Like um to, to reference Jack McDevitt again, um have you ever read A Talent for War? No. So that's I I think I've read every one of Jack McDevitt's books and kind of the big theme throughout his books is the humans develop interstellar travel and they look everywhere and there's very, very, very few people to meet. And it doesn't always work out. And in, in, in A Talent for War, it, it's sort of the humans are looking back on a war they had with the telepathic species called the Mutes. And in the, in the book, which takes place much after the war has ended, like the humans and the Mutes just kind of agree like, wow, we don't get along. But 
space is really big, so we're just going to part ways. And then the humans are left with sort of a vague disappointment, like, wow, we actually met somebody, we met somebody intelligent, and we couldn't get along. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, except for like an alien embassy on Earth or two and a human embassy on their worlds, like, basically, there's no contact with the aliens. But that's sort of another interesting idea, like... Like, it's been a long time since I saw Solaris, but if I recall correctly, I think Solaris also kind of comes to that conclusion, like, the aliens and the humans are incompatible, and, like, it's not going to work out. I can't remember the ending. You know, it's it's not the, it's not the Star Trek, you know, all arm-in-arm, happy federation, right. you know, future, where everybody looks vaguely humanoid. <laughs> or they have different noses. They have different foreheads, and otherwise they're exactly like humans to the point where they can interbreed. Well, at least Kirk can. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk does a lot. He, you know, he doesn't succeed in a lot of breeding, but he tries his damnedest. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to test it out for all of us. Right. He's just trying to see. Um, but, you know... So they could have gone a lot of ways, and, you know. In, in the in the movie, the proof is that you know her her video feed has eighteen hours of static. In the book, she comes back with concrete proof. The book has a totally oh, different ending. And I read the book many years ago. I I didn't read the book when it came out, but I read the book not too long after it came out. And in the book, she doesn't go alone. In the book, they send a bunch of people, hmm. um, and she comes back with proof. And the proof is something about pi. Like they tell her there's something buried in the digits of pi. And she goes back to the earth and she like, she looks at pi out for like a zillions and zillions of digits. And then she figures something out that implies that there's some sort of like master thinking to the universe. Hmm. Right. That like something is, is cogent or cognizant behind the way the universe is made because they buried it in the numbers. Like, you know, in some sort of, fundamental mathematical principle to the universe has a message in it. And that's what she brings back. So in the book, there's no debate. Like, oh, it's true. You know, look what she found. Because the aliens tell her, like, look in pie. And she looks, and lo and behold, it's there. So she couldn't have made that up. So that's a different different way to do it. It Sounds like uh, Sagan was super stoned. But that, that, that like, <laughs> Sagan Sagan did pot like in in um in K Davies' biography of Sagan, he talks about how Sagan smoked a lot of pot, so it's possible. Yeah, you know, he was married to Ann Druyan, who helped write this thing. I wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure um, that she probably baked a bunch of brownies. She's <laughs> she's super granola. <laughs> granola. I haven't said that in a long time. She's a um, hemp. Is she? No, I have no idea. <laughs> she, I was like, oh, really? I <laughs> heard her talk in interviews, and she sure sounds like she was. Um, <laughs> she probably had a hemp t-shirt. I love hemp. <laughs> Woody Harrelson's really into hemp. <laughs> and cool. He's always talking about S- hemp online. Sagan was like, yeah, hemp. Me too. <laughs> that Sagan never wrote another sci-fi novel you know you know he got a two million dollar advance to write this novel in 80s dollars that's a lot of dough yeah you know he lived long enough he could have written another book I mean he wrote his he wrote other non-fiction books but he boy he could have written another sci-fi book and made a lot of money huh two million dollars Jesus 
Well, publishers never, they'd never make their advances. Back. I know. <laughs> and by the way, when I gave him the $2 million, he probably said, thank you, God. <laughs> you don't think his professorship salary was uh, anything? <laughs> yeah, his full know. professor at Cornell. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. If, if you read uh, his uh, biography, um, like Kagan was respected and, and liked, but he wasn't loved. Like in the book, they have a hard, in the, in the biography, like there's a lot of people don't have a lot of good to say about him. Like he was a really tough, tough, hmm. tough person to be around. Um, he uh, just, just extremely difficult to work with. And he sort of left a trail of tears Interesting. Uh, behind him. I believe Sagan, um, yeah, I believe he had achalasia too, believe it or not, apropos of nothing. Hmm. I'm not giving you any medical stuff here that's been openly written about and spoken about, but I believe he had achalasia. Didn't he die? He died of leukemia or something like that. Though, he had he? myelodysplasia, and then he had a bone marrow transplant, and then he had a second one that I think didn't take. Yeesh. Uh, but I believe he had achalasia because they talk in the book that he had he had a hallomyotomy or he had some sort of like attempted surgery to fix his achalasia that didn't work. Huh. <clears throat> yeah. He apparently when he, when they made cosmos, like he kind of got through the day by drinking chocolate milk. He could get liquids down, but he couldn't get solids down. But we're digressing a lot from this movie. We're talking billions. about Carl Sagan's swallowing habits. <laughs> billions and billions of doses of my Bottles of you, of you who <laughs> billions of Maylox. <laughs> Do they still make you who? I could go for you who. Probably. I haven't seen you who since a long time ago, man. You know, you got a you who when you bought your hot dog from the Sabret vendor in New York City. Mm-hmm. That was like the both the least healthiest and most awesome lunch <laughs> that you could possibly imagine. A it, hot dog and a you who. It's probably still there, although there's a lot of like, you know, um, halal meat guys now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> They've replaced a lot of hot dog vendors. <laughs> Um, I would still put 2001 as the best first contact film. Where would you put this in the hierarchy of first contact films? Yeah, it's middling at best, I guess. But you can, you know, it's funny because you almost like Star Trek across all the series is kind of one big exploration of the first contact theme. And like you, you know, because they're said, meeting new people practically every week. It does a good job most of the time, too. Although it's yeah. pretty humanistic. Uh, yeah. Sec- yeah, secular humanism, I guess you'd call Star Trek. And they manage to break the prime directive whenever it's convenient for them. Well, there'd be no fun otherwise. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think sleeping with the alien constitutes a breach of the prime directive. <laughs> Riker got around a lot too, just as we're talking about breaking the prime directive. Riker got around a lot. Picard, not so much. No, that's not fair, was it? <laughs> he dated Vosh for a couple episodes, but Picard was mostly on his own, you know, in his ready room. There's no <laughs> <laughs> There's no worse name for a character than Vosh. <laughs> cow. Cow in French, by the way. Is it really? Yeah. I don't speak French. Sacre bleu. <laughs> As Monty Python says in uh, The Holy Grail, <laughs> John Cleese says, Feche la vache. <laughs> Feche. <laughs> awesome. Uh, that's good. 
Um, uh, you want to do best scene, best line, best shot? Sure. Um, you want to go first? Sure, because mine are really disappointing. <laughs> are you just you're disappointing, or I'm going to be disappointed? You and everyone else will be disappointed. I'm I'm not sure. I I I like the best best shot. I like that the mirror when she's running and she's in the and she oh, yeah. shows the bathroom mirror. That's that was really really. It's technically cool. great. Really clever, uh, and sort of a nice yeah, yeah that that's not a uh, that's not a beginner's move that one, and um, best scene. I I kind of like the the Hitler uh, when they the Hitler reveal. Uh, the opening sequence is good too. I don't really Into Hitler are you? Yeah, that, that was good. <laughs> uh, best best uh, line. I only have a worst line, and I can't remember the exact wording, which is a bad way to say what your worst line or best line is. But the 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 last line of the movie when she's get when he, he they're leaving Capitol Hill after her embarrassing oh, hearings. Yeah, and Matthew McC- of course Matthew McConaughey is there and. She gets in the. She's sort of uh, rumpled and and unhappy looking, um, sort of folded. He says, "I for one believer." He says more. Is than that, that the line? Yeah, yeah. He stands. He he gives a little. There's a, a bunch of press, and he talks over the roof of the the limo, and he says, "Right." He says something more than just "I believe her." He says, "Like you know, we, we need faith because whatever." It's supposed to. It, it's it's the coda. It's the coda for the the all the flawed plot elements in the movie, and it brings them together in one like ten second line, and it is terrible. <laughs> you know, by the way, McConaughey practiced that for a day that scene. Yeah, <clears throat> um, I'd say best shot is the opening shot because it's really one continuous shot. Like that opening is great. Yeah. Like I've watched that opening on YouTube and I've showed it to people like as a good example of like what you can do in a single shot. Yeah. Um, I think the best scene is when they get the message. Like it's that whole sequence from her listening to them getting the message and she's racing back and they're setting up all the stuff up until, you know, when they say to her, who do we tell? And she goes, everybody. Right. Like, I think that's, that's really well done. I think that's the high point of the whole movie. And I think you gave Palmer Joss the worst line. I'm going to give him what I think is the best line um, is the scene when they're in, in the White House. And she says, well, if it was a spiritual message, it would have come as a burning bush or a voice from the sky. And then he says, but a voice from the sky is exactly what you heard. And I thought, oh, touche, Palmer Joss. Mm-hmm. Like that was a that was a good use of him. Yeah. True that. He gets <laughs> true a couple. Dat, I believe. A, I believe it's pronounced true, that. True that. Yeah, he gets a couple good lines because then he, you know, like we said before, when they're talking by the house and he says, "Did you love your father? Prove it." That's another good one. It is a good line, and and yeah, it is a good line. He serves it's his a, device character purpose a couple of uh, well in a couple of scenes when he's not. You showing know, what's interesting up. is McConaughey has never returned to this type of persona. Like this is kind of a one-off. He either plays, he does a lot of the sort of heartless Lothario who learns to you know, value women, or he plays the sort of hard-bitten, you know, tobacco, you know, infused nicotine cop, uh, like in um, the HBO series True Detective. But, like, he hasn't kind of returned to this sort of, you know, thoughtful, reflective role in any movie that I can think of. Hippie priest. At least not not with this level of um, PR. He's like a hippie priest. Yeah, and he gets to screw women. 
Right. He's not a priest. Like he's a reverend. No, he's so a I guess he can priest. sleep with women. Right, exactly. Free right. love and faith. Right. And here's my number. <laughs> he gives her his number. It would have been better if they meet and he's like, who are you? She's, she's like, oh yeah 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 awesome you're only together. one of nine women i slept with during that weekend in arecibo <laughs> he was like oh yeah um sure <laughs> it's really good to see you again yeah. can you remind me to help a brother out <laughs> were you the, uh you worked in the convenience store right <laughs> yeah but uh that romance Ugh. Does, can, does Jodie Foster ever do romance? And like, for example, like when she's Clarice Starling, one of the reasons that that works, that role works so well is for her is because there's no romance in that entire story at all. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like she's better as Clarice Starling because it's more congruent with her personality than she is as Ellie Arroway. Yeah. You know, oh, right. or she's good as the woman in the accused, right? Like the wrong, ang- the wrong, violated, angry woman. By the way, um, Silence of the Lambs is my perfect example of a really, um, really good, really popular movie. Silence of the Lambs is terrific. It's Demi's high watermark. It's for a, sure. And it's it's great. And it's it's her high super, watermark. It's Anthony Hopkins high watermark. Uh huh. And it's just it's everybody's high watermark. And everybody loves it. And it, it made you know it made a huge impact. It's just it, it's just very digestible. You know, it's uh, really good. That's I didn't my, know if you were making a Hannibal Lecter eating people reference or pun there. You said it was digestible. It's digestible <laughs> unless you have, uh, what is it, Fanconi's anemia with the fava beans? <laughs> Fanconi's anemia. Um, yeah, or, or you're on an MAOI. It would be bad for the Chianti. Um, yeah, but it's true. It's true. But again, but she's better. Again, she's better as Starling than she is as Arroway. Although I like the sort of Star Wars-esque use of names, right? She's Ellie Arroway, right? Because she's like an arrow shot through the air, right? Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, oh, he's the loner, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's Ellie Arroway, so. Princess Leia, because Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> because she's Luke's brother? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, he planned all Luke's that sister. out ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. I know. Sure. I have a theory. If we ever get to do a Star Wars podcast, I have a theory about uh, the Luke brother sister thing. But we'll, we'll save that for another podcast. You know, Apparently, Arroway is uh, he chose the name Arroway uh, for Voltaire, whose last name was A R O U E T. How is that pronounced? Arroway? I don't know. You speak French. A R R O U T with the A R O U E T A R O U E T, but that's apparently Arroway, where the name yeah. Arroway comes right, from. Right, that would be Arroway, yeah. Kent Clark, oh god, Kent Clark's bad. <clears throat> um, we have to do a podcast not on Star Wars but on Lucas, because yeah, then we can talk yeah. about the Star Wars holiday special, <laughs> Star Wars <laughs> no, Christmas special, how Lucas lost his mind. <laughs> Right. We could talk about Red Tails. <laughs> we just, could talk about um, Howard the Duck. Was that Lucas? No, that was Spielberg, wasn't it? I don't know. Uh, I have a feeling Lucas is somehow tied to Howard the Duck. 
Um, and what was the a willow? I'm just thinking of all the willow. bad Spielberg. I saw the bad Lucas stuff we could do. Um, wow. no, it's Lucas film, Lucas film Lucas movies. Film, I don't know if he directed it, but uh, I don't think he really directed much after Star Wars, right? He, it's directed by. So, so Lucas was executive producer. So I'll still hang it around his neck, Howard the Duck. Yeah, but we could we could do a we could do Jesus, we could do five podcasts on Lucas. Um yeah, no, no, we should. We should. But uh, but anyway, but if we ever get there, I have a theory about Luke and Leia being brothers. I, you know, like as Reddit, Reddit has that thing called fan theories. I've never posted it to fan theories, but I should. Hmm. Um anything else? We're just about an hour now. Anything else you want to say about uh contact? No, I think we summed it up. Nicely made plot flaws. Yeah. I, I yeah, I think I think I, I give him a lot of like I said at the beginning, I give him just a ton of credit because you know there it's it's a very serious attempt to make a uh, a good sci-fi movie. Um, you know, and it's it's not done for a laugh. They they wanna get to the big issues, they want to answer or at least attempt to address big questions, right? Uh, Kubrick called it the proverbial good sci-fi movie. Oh, one um, one last thing we didn't get to that I wondered about. You know that um um Drurian and Sagan wrote um uh, wrote a screenplay or a treatment or something early on that didn't end up becoming the movie. I think you know the movie took a while to get made. So I wonder what that was like. I wonder how different that was compared to the eventual screenplay in the, yeah. in the film because the screenplay was written by James Hart and Michael Goldenberg, you know, nothing to do with um you know just the the original story is the story Sagan, is the book, right? But the movie diverges from the book on a lot of levels, right? So I wonder what their screenplay. It was probably a, hewn much closer to the original story in the book. I yeah, I assume that they just adapted the book. Hmm. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, I didn't read well, anything about that. I wonder. But I, I do like Zemeckis, though. I, I think he's a good director, and sure. even his lesser films are super watchable. Oh yeah, the guy's super skilled, and you know he he just. Um, Forrest Gump, you know, is, is much, is, uh, to my mind, a much superior movie, right? A totally different movie, obviously, right? But there's no, there's not well, much. Well, Forrest is likable. Like, he's more, like, I mean, they've got a more likable protagonist. And it's, there's, well, that movie, there's a lot of humor and sor- sort of, uh, there's a lot of humor in that movie, right? It's, well, yeah, of there's course. a lot of sort of satire and tongue in cheek and, and, and Forrest and Rye stuff and, you know, I right. Mean, you know, and flat it, out. I, I believe he said it was on the butt talks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> when he meets LBJ. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, the movie's funny throughout. And um, this movie, there's not really, not really a grin, a, a smile cracked in the whole movie. No, no. But again, back to the future, Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Right. Uh, Tons of the humor. Frighteners, Castaway. I love Castaway. Castaway's we should great. do Castaway. Castaway, we should do. Um, cast you know, he's done a lot of good stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right, I guess we should be wrapped. Yeah, let's wrap. See you next time. All right, thanks, everybody, and uh, back next week. <laughs>